Wonderful. Please take your seats. Thank you very, very much, Gwyn and Iwin and Han, for playing for us this morning. Thank you, Tim, uh, for keeping us uh, right. Let me pray for us before we get into this passage. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what we learn today, lessons that we need to. Lord, help us to, to have our hearts charged and for our, our wills to be uh, ready to, to, to receive what it is that you have to say to us today. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the truth that all we need is the Lord Jesus Christ, that that is very, very true, and that that carries us all the way through to eternity. Help us to believe that. Help us to functionally believe that as, as Christians and to go out of here ready and willing to, to, to give up all the things that entangle us and to, to give them away for the sake of loving and knowing Christ more. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, uh, welcome back to Jesus School of Discipleship. And we've had a number of lessons so far already um, over the course of the last uh, few weeks. And uh, this morning we sort of we begin to move on. We're still dealing with with, with, with who do we fear? Do we fear man? Do we fear God? We're still dealing with how much we are worth. What, 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 what do we think we are like in front of people? And uh, this morning we are looking at uh, a, a topic that follows on from all of that, that if we're brutally honest with, we're, we're all very concerned with all the time, I think. It's an issue that hits us all in different ways, some of us harder than others, and it is the issue of money, wealth, security, and material happiness. <clears throat> as I was sitting down to write this sermon, literally, as I was typing these words, I was sitting down to write this sermon, no word of a lie, that, that the following news flash popped up on my phone uh, beside me on my desk, and the headline was this, UK's biggest ever lottery winners reveal their identity and are about to say what they will do with their 184 million pounds. I was so stunned, I actually took a screenshot of it. Um, it was remarkably well-timed, considering what Jesus is talking uh, to us about this morning. I actually opened the link, and it took me to a Sky News broadcast. Uh, some of you might have seen it uh, replayed on the BBC News, uh, of Dermot O'Leary, I think it was, interviewing Joe and Jess Thwaite on the Euro Millions TV channel. And uh, Jess Thwaite said the following. She said, overall, it was just a relief, if I'm honest, for us, my, my mum, my sister, as a family, it's a relief for all of us who have been struggling with bills and inflation and the cost of living crisis to know that we don't have to worry about anything ever again. We are set up for life. Luke 12, 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Isn't that striking? And, and I'm not knocking the Thwaites, incidentally. That's not my job to. I, I don't have a right to do that. They might be amazing with money, and it will be a blessing to many, many people. I'm not knocking the Thwaites. I'm jealous of the Thwaites. Even as I was writing this sermon, of all sermons, I almost couldn't help myself wishing, or at least heavily daydreaming, that, that that was me there on that couch being interviewed. And, and I can imagine you all thinking that as I'm saying this that the oars had won £184 million this week, that everything was suddenly fine, that my kids would go to the very best schools, that we could have any house we liked. As I heard Joe talking about raising his maximum limit bar on the Right Move website to unlimited, I, I almost salivated, <laughs> dreaming of the things I could buy, the people I could help, heck, the churches I could fund in my better, more noble daydreaming moments. If only... And as much as that might be a humorous thing, Jesus actually says it's a very serious thing. That 
heart yearning for more money and more stuff and the assumed security and safety that is attached to it. Luke 12, 15, take care, Sam, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, that broadcast with these lottery winners revealed a lot more about my heart than it did about the Thwaites. You see, as we follow Jesus on the road to Calvary, to the cross, where Jesus will lose everything, as we listen to the teaching of Jesus as to how we become better disciples, people who live for him and who give up everything to follow him, what is Jesus most concerned about here? Our hearts. And what our hearts seek and find and take comfort in. And today and over the next few weeks, it is specifically that wealth and possessions and earthly comfort that offers the heart so much, ultimately gives it nothing. Rather, it may actually drag us away from the Lord Jesus. And in that hand-to-mouth culture of Jesus' time, the issue of money comes up time and time and time again in Jesus' teaching, more than almost any other issue, especially in Luke it seems. It is supremely important for Jesus because if there is anything that is going to drag us away from him, this journey of faith in following him, it's going to be material comfort. Whether we have 184 million pounds and seeing that as our only savior, or whether we have very little but whose hearts are are, are in the danger of desperately craving it and, and running hard after it. For both the exceedingly wealthy, the the desperately poor, and everyone in between, the laying up for treasure for ourselves, covetousness in our hearts, that is a massive problem. And think about where we are as a society today, in the middle of a remarkably, genuinely difficult cost of living crisis, the likes of which not many of us, I don't think, have really known. With an inflation crisis, an energy crisis, a supply chain crisis, all wrapped up together in a post-Brexit, post-COVID, mid-European war box. With, for many of us, and I've spoken to a number of you actually over the past two weeks about this, for the first time, genuinely squeezed and more aware and worried of money than you've ever been before. And we may think of this passage, goodness, this is a bit of a punch to the gut. Well, it really isn't. It's not at all inappropriate that this passage comes up today. In fact, this week and next week, it is deeply appropriate for the very times that we are living through. For it turns our hearts and our minds and our eyes from the worries of earthly treasure, the worries that we may well be feeling this morning, and rightly refocuses on them to the only thing that will offer everything that he's ever promised by way of safety, security, and comfort. And that is God, wrapped up in the poor, suffering, but ultimately glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get into the passage together. For how does this bit of Jesus' school of discipleship lesson start? Well, it starts with a request, doesn't it? From someone in the crowd, verse 13, who said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. You remember right at the beginning of the series... Um, I said that the uh, crowds were really important. In fact, the crowd is almost a character in its own right. And Jesus deals with them, the Pharisees, and the disciples at sort of different times over the course of the same teaching. Well, today Jesus turns to the crowds for this lesson as he answers this man. And so all of us are sort of taking up into it. He's going to turn to the disciples right at the end of this passage. 
And the kind of matter that this guy presents to Jesus is actually one that is very vexing and could be vexing in any age. The issue of inheritance, even very much so in our age, in fact. The, the court cases, the bitter public disputes over wills, the sensationalized high-end high court divorces, couples raking each other through the mud of their lives in public shamelessness to squeeze everything they can out of each other, the, the extraordinary recrimination that follows that breaks families apart, that's serialized in Hello magazine or whatever, I assume that's the magazine I've been told. It's no different in Jesus' day. The crowd, a picture of sort of the bog-standard person on the street, this man, he's wanting Jesus to get involved in that very dispute. Demand that my brother gives me what is rightfully mine, Jesus. Arbitrate between you and me. Come on, let's do what's right. Get involved. I, I want more stuff. That's the most important thing, Jesus, you can be doing for me right now, in other words. Well, it really isn't, says Jesus, as he speaks to the crowds, one of his most famous parables. But he doesn't actually start with a parable. Jesus introduces it with a proverb. And we see that in verse 15, which brings us to our first point, the proverb that there is more to life than stuff. Verse 15, just read that with me. And he said to them, that is to the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. What's the proverb? Well, simply says Jesus, there's more to life than stuff. Or sharper still, there is more to life than the stuff that you don't even need and can't even use. The word abundance here speaks of surplus. It's the word that is used of Jesus when he describes the, the leftovers from the feeding of the 5,000. And the word to covet literally translates, means the desire of more to have. And so Jesus is saying your life doesn't consist of surplus, of, of massive disposable income, to use today's language. There's so much more than that. And so Jesus' point is this. You've got what you need already, you who are complaining about demand, demanding more from inheritance. You've got what you need, Samor, as you slaver over someone else's 184 million pounds. That inheritance, that, that lottery win, that, that house, whatever it is that you're fretting over, hankering after, it is, it's more than what you need. You don't need it. Life is so much more than having stuff that you don't need. Are you sure, then, that this issue with your brother, man from the crowd, is not about taking what you need and what you think is rightfully yours, and so much more about your heart? You see... As is always the case with Jesus, this is actually a remarkable reply. There might be no doubt that this voice that shouts out from the crowd feels genuinely hard done by. That there's, uh, that's almost certainly why he's calling for Jesus. His older brother, we assume, hasn't arbitrated his father's will fairly as he should as the older brother. That was his legal right. And some of us might actually end up in that situation where money is rightfully ours, but is taken from us, or it isn't given to us, and we genuinely feel hurt and damaged. We desire justice. This, this man is desiring justice. But Jesus doesn't deal with what might be legally right. He deals with the heart. Jesus' comment in verse 14 is striking, isn't it? Have you spotted that? Before he gives this proverb, he says, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? That's a really interesting question. Because the answer you could rightly come back with is, well, God the Father did. 
That's it. That's literally your job, Jesus. This is the Lord Jesus speaking, the, the judge of the living and the dead. He has every right to arbitrate over this. One could almost expect Jesus to step into it and go, yeah, okay, I know what's going on. Let's keep the law. But Jesus doesn't. You see, that's not the arbitrating job that I've come to do, says Jesus. He's not here for petty, if genuine, legal disputes. He has much bigger fish to fry. He has the hearts of men to contend with. And that is the same for you, man in the crowd. If you really knew why I was here, you wouldn't be asking me to sort out your money disputes. Your heart is in the wrong place. You have a heart issue, and it's all bound up in stuff. Take care, says Jesus. Your life is so much more than stuff. That is the last thing you need to be worried about. Note also, before we move on, that Jesus doesn't say, take care for one's life doesn't consist of your possessions. That is true. And he does say that elsewhere in the Bible. To the rich young ruler, he says, go and give away all your possessions to the poor and then come and follow me. You don't need anything. In fact, next week, in the second half of this bigger passage, Jesus will say that again, verse 33. He says to the disciples, us Christians, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Our lives are so much more than our possessions, even the possessions we need. But Jesus here says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's the big point. For one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. Jesus isn't saying that having stuff is bad, not at all. A lot of people around him have lots of stuff and they're all used incredibly well. Jesus depends on people having lots of stuff. His ministry does. Jesus isn't saying that having stuff is bad. It is the covetousness and the hankering after and the living and striving and the taking people to court over the stuff that really matters. At that point, your stuff becomes a heart issue. It becomes your treasure. It becomes your God. It becomes my treasure. It becomes my God. The question for us is, as we draw this first point to a close, is do we really believe that? Do we functionally believe what Jesus says here? Are we content to not live amongst or have the safety net of our worldly possessions around us? Are we content receivers of our wages? Are we grateful receivers of our wages, not hagglers and grumblers. If someone left us a large inheritance that was cruelly snatched from us, do we believe in those moments this teaching of Jesus? That our lives are worth so much more than the money that we didn't get? That there is a more important life to be living? And it's easy to say this from the front, but it's really hard to live in the moment. When someone gets promoted over us to a higher wage bracket, unfairly or not, how does my heart behave in that moment? Or conversely, when I have to sell the second car or not go away on that holiday because of the cost of living crisis or whatever. When I have to give up the everyday things that I'm so used to having around me, my Netflix subscription, the takeaways that we need to cut back on, whatever it is. How does my heart behave in those moments? When people around me seem wealthier, better connected, better traveled, better dressed, better educated. How do our hearts behave in those moments? When our children don't do academically well at school, perhaps even. 
or if you get to the stage where they have to change school with ones that we're not happy with, when our teenagers don't get the grades they or we would like, when the best university places go to others and our children miss out, and their prospects suddenly seem to change overnight, what are our hearts doing in those moments? What are we teaching our children in those moments about what is important and what isn't? And in every moment leading up into those moments. Are we content in what we have that God has given to us for our needs? Reminding ourselves from last week that he knows us and loves us intimately, remember. This is where this comes out of. You're known, you're seen, I know everything. I literally know everything, says God the Father. And, and, and I love you, and I've noticed you, as, as my, I notice every single sparrow that falls to the ground. And How much more do you think I would know and love you? I know every hair on your head. And, and you're worried about stuff? Are we content? Or are we covetous, desperate for more, not satisfied with what we have? If that is us, take care, says Jesus. Be on your guard, watch out, be warned. Don't covet these things, don't live and die by them. Don't bring your children up with a warped sense of what is really important in life. For your life is so much more than those things, and there are much greater things to worry about. And that brings us to our second point this morning. For what are those greater things to worry about? Well, this is where Jesus brings us to the parable itself. Point two, the parable, there's more to life than life. You see, Jesus says, the greater thing to worry about is, is death at the end of your life. Because in the face of death, none of the stuff you strive for and desire and covet and gain will matter. Not one tiny jot. For in the face of death, there is so much more to life than just living this life. Verse 16, let's read the parable. He told them a parable saying, The land of the rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus paints the picture of a farmer or a landowner for, for whom everything is going well, isn't it? This farmer is not producing wheat under the conditions of the Russo-Ukrainian war, where wheat is rotting in bombed-out shelters, grain-filled cargo ships are stuck at ports, unable to move because of mine-pitted black seas. That's not what's going on here. He's not harvesting an year of climate-induced drought or flood under the weight of COVID. No, he's producing plenty. Things have been going really well. He's worked very hard. And this farmer, who is already wealthy, now starts plotting for his retirement, and you can't blame him. He's now thinking about the world cruise, the second house in the Algarve, or, or on a lower level, maybe just the allotment that he's always wanted to go to. Great, you can't blame him. He's done very well for himself. If anyone deserves good rest, we would say in our culture, surely it's the astute and hardworking farmer. And in the day and age, Jesus is speaking, that there are no wealth fund managers or investors to help protect your property portfolio. Most wealth was held in uh, commodities that would be kept and sold as you needed. This is what this guy is doing. This is his pension pot to make his retirement sure. 
in order to keep my days comfortable, in order for me to help me get rest, to eat, drink, and be merry, I will store bigger barns to hold my commodities and my wealth. Long live me. And we might describe him as clever, wise even, well thought through, astute, good with money. But how does Jesus describe him? Verse 20, God says to this man, you fool. He is foolish. Why? Because one day he's going to die. And he's not treated this life well in the light of that death. You see, I think there are two primary things that this landowner gets wrong. The first is that he forgets he is mortal, followed at the same time very quickly by the fact that he's forgotten that he is accountable, that his life is not his own. I don't know if you've noticed, but look at how often the first person singular comes up in the speech of this farmer, how much he says, I, my, um, in this project. Work through it with me from verse 17. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, there he says you, but who's he talking to? Himself. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I, I, my, I, I, my, I, my, my, I, my. This guy is totally self-absorbed. Uh, and he has to be, if, if, if stuff is what's going to make him be who he wants to be. Everything is about him, his comfort, and he assumes total control over his life. And what does God think of that mindset? Oh, you're so foolish. I, I wish we could slow this right down. It, it, this story is so packed, as Jesus' parables are, and this one in particular is packed with warnings from all over the Old Testament. Jesus isn't just telling a story here to illustrate a point. He's actually bringing all the truths and wisdom of God over the ages to bear on this one issue of money and possessions. The first alarm bell comes in verse 19, where we read those famous words, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's actually, I don't know if you know this, it's a direct quote from Ecclesiastes 8. We're actually going to be looking at Ecclesiastes, heads up, um, in January in the new year. We're going to be working all the way through it. Um, Ian is going to be preparing that series for us, and, we'll, and he's going to be leading that, which is great. And it, it is a book that is dedicated to the seeking of wisdom and wise living, with a teacher striving to find out what makes life meaningful and rich. And his conclusion is God alone does. Everything else is meaningless if God is not involved or if God is not the end goal. He is the be-all and end-all of pleasure and work, of toil and strife, of difficulty and wealth. And in Ecclesiastes 8.15, we read these words. Man has no good thing under the sun and to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Finishing in verse 20. However, as much as man may toil in seeking it, he will not find it, even though a wise man will claim to know he cannot find it. Can you see how this relates to this parable? This is why Jesus is using these words. You fool, says God to this farmer in Luke 12, 18. Your life is now demanded of you. Don't you know it is God who gives you your days, Ecclesiastes 8. Your life is not all about me, my, I, myself. Your life belongs to God. And he will call this life in when he is good and ready. He, Ecclesiastes 8, gives you your full days. It is he, Luke 12, 20, who will call your life to account and will demand you of it. Therefore, you fool, says Jesus to the crowd, pictured in this farmer. Can you not see then from Ecclesiastes that 
striving after this eating and drinking and merrymaking, as fine as it is in itself, is not what the meaning of life is about. That outside of God it is worthless living, as worthless as catching breath in the wind, nothing but vapor, foolish. And Jesus builds on that foolishness some more. He doesn't leave it there, does he? For God says to this farmer, Luke 12, verse 20, your life is required of you, and the things you have prepared, well, whose will they be? In other words, the riches that you've toiled for will eventually go to someone else and will not be at all to your benefit. You can't take it with you, in other words. That is also Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Chapter 5.10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also chasing after the wind. Verse 13, For there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he might be a father of a son, but the son has nothing in his hand and he loses it. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You see? Man is finite. His days are numbered, and his life is accountable to God who will call for all of that life back, and nothing else that he has will matter. And when that happens, the riches this man or any man has built up are ripped from him when he dies and are either lost in a bad venture in Ecclesiastes 8, handed to a son who doesn't know what to do with it, nothing in his hand, it's all lost. No, he's not even remembered by his wealth. The things the wealthy have prepared will go to someone or something else. What, what is the point? You see, working for earthly possessions is, says Jesus, ultimately striving for the wind. It is breathtaking folly. You fool. The point, living life with no reference to God is totally pointless. You end up with nothing you've worked for. You have forgotten, rich, foolish farmer, that you're going to die, that you're mortal, and that your life belongs not to you but to God, that your days belong not to you but to God, and one day he will demand it from you and your stuff will be lost to others. It's not up to you to dictate as you see fit. You see, says Jesus, in response to the request of this man in the crowd, there is more to life than life. If you're living for life in the now and only life in the now, then you're going to be sorely disappointed and you will lose everything that you've worked for. Death will bring a sorry end to all of it. And for what purpose? Again, do we believe that to be true? That we are mortal, that we have no days that belong to ourselves, that our whole lives belong to God, that he numbers them, marks them, and then demands them from us. Do we know, therefore, that there is more to life than life, than living for the now? Do we believe, therefore, that in fact that there is more to life with God? And that brings us to our third and final point, which tips us over into the second half of this larger teaching block of Jesus, which we'll come to next week. For what is the purpose of this proverb, the purpose of this parable? Well, it is a foundation on which Jesus wants to build the truth on, which is that there is much more to life with God. Verse 20 to 21, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, in this life, we are mortal, finite, it's going to die. We are accountable. Our lives and our possessions are not our own. They will be demanded of us at a time not of our choosing. So what is the point of living? The point is, the purpose of this proverb and this parable, the point is that the, the, the meaning of life is God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If it is God who holds your days and who has a say over our lives, then it is, it is, is it not him that I need to invest in, put all my energies and striving into? Because when we look at the God of the Bible, suddenly we see that God is an eternal God, that there is so much more to life than life now, that Jesus is a risen saviour, that I have so much more to live for. It's dynamic, it's real, it's, 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 it's eternal, it's a material thing. Don't be a fool, says Jesus, and live as if this life is all you have, being rich only to yourself for no purpose. Rather, be rich, to, be rich towards God who is eternal and exceedingly wealthy. Ultimately, we have to give ourselves an account before God, don't we? Just you and God on your own. Just me and God on my own in that moment, on the day of judgment. As the saying goes, we can't take it with us. The point is here that it just won't help us, even if I could, in front of God. We'll all be standing in front of the one who holds our lives in his hands and holds us accountable, naked as the day we were born. So therefore, have we used our stuff and money and possessions rightly, not, covetously, uh, not in covetousness, in the light of that day of accountability? The point, you see, is not against having money or things. It is against envy, envy and greed and covetousness and the self. It's all about what I do with what I have in my life that's been given to me. No, actually, how do we do all of that in the light of eternity that God has given to me for his glory? What does rich... What does being rich towards God look like? Well, Jesus is going to unpack that for us next week. And, and that is where he turns to the disciples. He says, disciples, this is on you. As followers of me, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, believers of God, those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is now on you. What are you going to do about it? It's obvious, isn't it? Whatever is the opposite of being rich towards ourselves looks like, well, that is what being rich towards God is. It means rather than giving myself my money, it means giving our money and possessions away to work for God's kingdom. Sometimes the application is just that simple. It's not complicated. That's what we'll read next week, verse 31. Seek his kingdom and so much more will be added to you. Give away your possessions, follow Jesus. Are we serious about that? Do we believe it? This is an easy application for me to shout from the front here, and it might make your eyes roll, but, but I really hope it doesn't, because I think it's the right one. Are we giving to the work of the gospel? Are we giving to the work of God? Are we being rich towards him? Not just in money, but, but with everything we have, our, our houses, how we use that, our time, our talents, our skills, our minds... Are we giving to the local church? Are we giving money here to redeem us sincerely, sacrificially, or, or to the work of the gospel around the world? I have the, it's really helpful that I don't know a single, what, what any of you give to the church. I don't know that 
at all. So I can say this with real impunity while also looking at my own heart, the only person I know how much I give, and ask us all the question, are we giving sacrificially to the mission of this local church? Are we really? Are we willing to give up a lot of our income and possessions and wealth and time and skills and talents for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the lost? Because that's what God's business is. And if we are rich towards God, then that means we are going to invest in his business. And that business, the business of the church worldwide and universal, the the business of Redeemer, is an eternal business. It's one that isn't ruined or tainted by death. There is astonishing return for our investment. An eternal one. A glorious one, a return that never runs out or gives up or turns stale or goes dry or ends. A return that you get to see when you stand before your father who calls you you to account and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter my rest. See the return for you being rich towards me and my kingdom. There is so much more to life than stuff. There is so much more to life than life now. There is eternity beyond death, access through God to whom I must give an account for everything that he has given me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Being good with money and possessions, even in a godly way, doesn't make us right before God or make us Christians. Christ does that on the cross, and he does it alone. It's not topped up by my giving him money, like the American sort of horrible evangelist. Neither on the other extreme are we encouraged to be impoverished and starving, sort of living ascetically for the sake of looking like we're doing the right thing. That's also not what we are called to do. And neither is it as if God needs my money to help him, like he's some kind of charity case. That without my giving, heaven's going to be all the lesser for it. Like he needs the roof repaired, and I'm able to help with that. And eternity is just him being grateful for me and sort of showing me what I was able to fix. Not in the slightest. God doesn't need me. He wants me. And he wants me to be rich towards him. He invites us to live the best life by not worrying about the now and living for a much better future. That's what we'll look at next week. Living this way means that I don't need to be anxious anymore about stuff and money. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And rather spend your time investing in his mission which brings dead people to life and which gets them into eternity. It is for your sake I want you to give, says God the Father, because there is so much more than stuff. There is so much more than even life itself now. There is me, says God. Beyond death, our heavenly Father, desiring to give you eternal riches in glory in Christ and bringing many others with you in your wake. Woe is the one Or foolish is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Redeemer, let's not be fools with our money or with our stuff, with our gifts, with our talents. Let us prayerfully examine our hearts and our wallets and our possessions and see just how we use them rightly and sacrificially and wisely for God and for his kingdom and for his glory. Let me pray for us as we close.
Heavenly Father, God, thank you and praise you so much for your goodness to us in the gospel. Thank you for your riches to us, your, your liberal riches to us in Christ. Thank you that you give us so much more than we ask or imagine. Thank you that you give us so much more than we need. Thank you that you give us the things that we just do not deserve in any realm of life. A chance to be with the Father in glory for eternity through the death, the incredible sacrifice of your son. As he gave himself up, every single part of himself up, for the sake of me being able to get into eternity, to be found righteous in him. Father God, thank you so much for the cross of Christ and where we see all the riches of God brought to bear in the Lord Jesus. Please, Father, help us to live the same way. Help us to live sacrificially dependent on you. Help us to live liberally, willingly giving stuff away, giving our things away, our time. Forgive us, forgive me where that just doesn't happen. Where we hold on so fast to the things that we have, that we are so frightened of losing. Please, Heavenly Father, help us to live in the light of what Jesus tells us here to not be worried, to not be anxious, but to be rich before God in whom we have absolutely everything in Christ and who will be given the treasures of heaven being with you in eternity. Father God, help us, help us not to feel condemned but liberated, we pray. Lord, help us to, to, to live light in the light of the gospel that you would want us to live as, as free Christians in Christ who are able to do all these things because we have been saved by an incredible grace and an incredible mercy. And Father God, may it be that we are a church that is primed and ready and seen to be, to be giving well of our time, our money, our talents for the sake of the gospel, and that because of it, many, many more people would come and hear and respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.